Father, we pray that as we look at this letter um, today and for this, this term ahead, it may help us to press on towards the goal to win the prize for which you've called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Would you nourish us? Would you encourage us? Would you keep us going? And would you challenge us? Would you convict us? We want to see Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. One of of my main problems with Philippians, this letter we'll be looking at, is is chapter 4 and verse 4. Do you see it? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Always? Paul, Paul, are you serious? Paul, do you, do you know my circumstances? Do you know what life looks like for me at the moment? September is always a struggle. My, my diary is manic. Re- rejoicing is not on my agenda for September. Probably October. Or we say, but, but work is still a nightmare. There are politics in the leadership. My, my boss is a bully. My colleagues are awful. Or we say, well, I can't think straight because I can't sleep because I'm too anxious. I'm too stressed. Life is too hard. There's too much uncertainty. But all the years are ticking by and my body, my mind are falling apart. Issues with health. Or how did I end up here doing this? This this is not how it was meant to be. This was not the dream I had for my life. I'm stuck in Oxford. For me, life was meant to be dot, 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 whatever it is for you. Or we switch on the news, on the TV, and it's there. As we've just prayed, it's refugees, it's, it's drowned children, it's murders, it's ISIS, it's child sex offenders. Or it's personal news, death of friends, of family, the way people have treated us in the past. And there is just so much there to sap our joy, to to reduce our rejoicing. And we say, Paul, 4 verse 4, seriously, always? And anyway, some of us are thinking theologically, well, how, how does a verse like that fit with the lament psalms? Some of the lows of scriptures, God's people pour out their hearts to him. We'll tackle some of those in weeks to come. But for now, at the beginning, and as we try and get a bit of an overview of Philippians as a whole, just notice it is a letter full of joy. The, the theme that bubbles up again and again and again to the surface is joy. Wherever you see joy or rejoicing or glad. At root, those are joy words. So just sweep over the letter with me as we try and get a bit more familiar with it. 1 verse 4. Paul says, I always pray with joy. 1 verse 18. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. 2 verse 2. Make my joy complete. 2 verse 17. 2 verse 18 as well. I am glad and rejoice 2 verse 28 when they see Epaphroditus that they may be glad 229 welcome him with great joy 3 verse 1 rejoice in the Lord 4 verse 1 they are his joy and his crown 
4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. 4 verse 10, he rejoiced greatly in the Lord as they were concerned for him. I have to say, I found it incredibly challenging. Spending time in Philippians these last few weeks, chewing this stuff over in light of life. The reality of what's going on, just as a family, various things have been hard for us. But more than that, would a fly on the wall of my life describing me use words like joy or rejoice or glad? Whatever's going on. How would the fly on the wall of your life describe you? It seems to me as as you read the letter... Paul is very clear on, on real joy. And, and I think our society, though, is confused about what joy is. It came up a bit with the kids' slots. Have a look on the screen at some of these adverts. They, they, used to, they used joy as a concept to sell us a product, to sell us a lifestyle even. Let's see what we think. Dairy milk. Joy. There's pots of joy as well as a spin-off from that. Does chocolate give us joy or, or drinks? See, Pepsi. Cake. Sarah Lee. Or maybe, and ever so bizarrely, I don't think this is sarcasm. Joy in going to Ikea? Does anybody want to own up to that? It's a few nods. There we go. Awkward. All right. If it's not Ikea, is it the car we drive? Are Audi drivers more joyful? Mr. Taylor. Or indeed, BMW drivers. Are they more joyful? And what about the latest Disney Pixar movie? Here we have Joy. If you've not seen it, I won't spoil it for you. But it's a very interesting movie, a good film in lots of ways. And Joy is a vital character, but I wonder whether... Really what's being spoken of is not actually joy, at least not in joy in Paul terms, but is happiness, is pleasure. And so there is this strange crossover, perhaps, in how we define words. I wonder if often we work from a faulty definition of what joy is, and the joy that we often talk of are are little shadows of true joy that comes from being in Christ and knowing him. And so we talk of joy as being eating chocolate or cakes or drinking Pepsi or driving the right car or having the right furniture. But, but actually those are just the little shadows of the joy that we were made for, which is the joy of knowing the God who is full of joy. Joy for the Christian is not about circumstances. It's to do with knowing the God who made the world. It's to do with knowing our sins have been forgiven and We are loved by his amazing son. It's because he he lives within us and his Holy Spirit works in us to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. Which which means when we're confronted by the mess of the world, when we switch on the news at 10, we see the brokenness of lives. Then we can still have something of a joy because we know we were made for God. At least in theory it's still there. Before we dive in, I take it, it comes as well, just, just try and get this into your minds, that, 
that it comes from being the people we were made to be because it comes from sharing in the delight of the Trinitarian God who is at the center of reality. Just as the Father has always and eternally and forever delighted in the Son, has taken pleasure in him, has found joy in him. That's always been the case, so we're now made to share in that joy. We can enjoy that inter-Trinitarian joy. But I take it if you're anything like me, you probably struggle with joy. It's worth saying some of us will struggle with depression, and I think that's different. I think where there are when medical help is sometimes needed, that changes the way you ought to hear this sermon. Come and grab me afterwards. It makes things much more complicated. But if that's not you, often our question is, how do we have how do we have the kind of joy that Paul writes of to the Philippians? How do we be the kind of people who, who bubble over with joy, with rejoicing, with gladness? Why can joy be so elusive? What are we doing wrong? Well, this is a slightly different sermon from what we'll be experiencing for the rest of the series. But for now, I want you to see that there are two sources, two key sources of joy for Paul from the letter. And then there'll be one vital implication to take away. The first thing to say, and it's simple really, is that joy is about Christ. 38 times in the letter, Paul mentions Jesus Christ. Let me read again from the the bit that Alicia read for us. See how many Christs you can count as I read. I'm actually going to read from 3.1, just a little bit beforehand, to give us some context. Paul writes further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have more reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. Whatever is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And we'll spend much more time with them in weeks to come, but for now, just know it's the context of another group, some false teachers, undermining the Philippians' faith because they take confidence in the wrong things, that their history, their, their background, their bloodline 
what they do for God. And Paul says, I take confidence in Christ. Verse 3, I boast in Christ. Verse 8, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. Verse 10, he wants to know Christ more in both his sufferings and his resurrection. Verse 14, he he presses on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And you see it right through the letter. But just in that little collection of verses, the, the overarching picture that Paul has of his life is defined by Jesus. He, he is Jesus-shaped. It's as if, as if Paul is the footnote and Jesus is the main event. It's as if Paul is to be forgotten, Jesus is to be remembered. It's not about Paul. It's not about us. I take it when that's the case, when Jesus is what your life is really about, then joy is far less elusive. Too easily, our our, our life, our joy comes from the trimmings, the circumstances of life. Good stuff, gifts from him, but, but still trimmings. And we look to them for joy. And then we find they don't and they can't and they were never meant to really satisfy us because only he can, because only he was ever meant to. And we think if I had a bit more money, then I'd have joy or a bit more sleep or a bit more cake or slightly better behaved children or or kids who can succeed where I didn't succeed or a spouse or a nicer spouse or, or genuine friends or house with a bit more room or holiday with a bit more sun, a less stressful job. That people would love me and praise me and admire me. That I can get the grades to get the offers to get the job. Or I can have some certainty about the future and what's coming next. Or something to distract me from the mess of life. And none of those things are bad in themselves, but it's, it's striking. As you read Philippians, you see that, that Paul is full of joy. And it's because he knows who he is. In Christ. Jesus is how Paul defines himself. I find this very striking. It's there at the very beginning of the letter, but 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. 1 verse 13, he's a prisoner because of Christ Jesus. Or, or 1 verse 11, whilst in chains, it is Christ who is Paul's message. Or 1 verse 19, it, it is Christ who empowers Paul now through his spirit. Or, Or 1 verse 6, it is Christ who will finish the job of sanctification and it is Christ who will return, 2 verse 11, 2 verse 16. From start to finish for Paul, it is all about Jesus. He is completely and utterly shaped by Christ. And it sounds obvious, but it's the obvious question for us as well. What would you say shapes you? Your perception of who you are, your perception of your life. What characterizes you as a person? What defines you? I find this very challenging. Because if it's anything other than Christ on paper or how we practically live, we will have significant issues with joy. And my battle and your battle is to keep remembering Keep reminding ourselves, keep persuading ourselves, Jesus is better. Better than the trimmings. 
the things that we run after that they never provide, we're always disappointed. Run after the one that you were made for because Jesus is better. Just as the mythical sirens sang beautiful, alluring songs to passers-by, they attempted to lure Jason and the Argonauts onto the rocks. That They promised much, but they would destroy you. Do you remember how Jason resisted? There was Odysseus beforehand. He filled um, the ears of his crew with beeswax so they couldn't hear the songs. But for Jason, it was Orpheus who played a more beautiful song than the sirens. Jesus is better. Have a listen to this from one theologian. He says, compare Christ to whatever else it is that you treasure. So what is it that you really want? What is it that you love? Is it love? Is it the desire to be loved? He says that can come across in various ways. A, a desire for fame, a sexual addiction. Or is it acceptance or money or power or comfort? Now, now compare that thing that you dream of and, and love with Christ. Which is better as you compare them? Does pornography offer you the satisfaction, acceptance and love that Jesus does? Does money offer you anything in comparison to the riches of Christ? Does passing temporal power offer you anything in comparison to what Christ is offering? And when you see how much better Christ is than those things you're running after, you will choose Christ rather than those things and you will walk away from them. Jesus is better. Or allow me one more. I wasn't sure about putting this in, but I think we should, just to get our hearts beating. This is from um, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher. His final sermon um, at Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London. And it's mind-blowing. It's profoundly helpful to people like us as as he pleads with his people to follow Jesus. His last time in the pulpit, and he says this. He says, you will find sin, self, Satan and the world to be hard masters. But if you follow Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There was never his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name, and I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below, If it so pleased him, his service is life and peace and joy. He is the most magnanimous of captains. He is beautiful. Jesus is better. Don't get caught up in the trimmings. Go to him for joy. So joy is about Christ. Secondly, the children saw joy is in people. I think this is amazing. Paul's joy is tied up in the progress of the Philippians. Isn't that interesting? He is not the cold and aloof, angular theologian that he is so often painted as being. He, 
His joy is genuinely affected by real people and how they are doing. Rather than us being the self-preserving, impermeable, distant people, as we often are, not allowing our hearts to be broken by those around us, so we must allow ourselves to be affected by one another. Vulnerable. Because there, in their progress, is joy. Listen to how he prays at the beginning. We'll be here next week. But a sneak preview for now. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They've supported him in all kinds of ways in ministry. He rejoices. He is encouraged by their partnership in the gospel. He prays for them with joy. And yet, if you know the letter, you'll know one of the reasons he's writing is that there is a problem. There's an issue. There seems to be some kind of disunity among them. They're they're not loving each other as they ought. There there seems to be a squabble between two of the elder, more um, prominent women in the church. Before verse 2, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I ask you, my true companion, Timothy, who's going, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. You see, when churches split, when they divide, then the work of the gospel is undone, that the uniting work of the gospel is destroyed. And so much of the letter, chapter 2 particularly, is of him reminding them to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, the servant-hearted, humble mindset of Jesus. That is how Paul's joy can be complete. Again, let me read uh, 2 verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul's joy comes from the Philippians, a united Philippian church, displaying the glory of the gospel of Christ as they submit to one another, as they love one another. That is a challenge to a culture like ours and to a people like us. Reflecting on this this week, I have to say the unity at Magdalen Road is something that I rejoice in, genuinely. If you've been around for any length of time here, you will know for the last couple of years plus we've been thinking about buildings and the possibility of a, a bigger, more permanent building in the local area and we have a breadth of issues among us. But I think the way we have treated each other and listened and engaged has been brilliant. After our last church meeting back in July, we spoke and we prayed and discussed and agreed and disagreed. But, but much of the feedback we received the next day as leaders, it was such a privilege. It was, it was people commenting on how well others had been treated and listened to. So thank you. We, we don't take that kind of unity for granted Especially in a church like ours that has a level of diversity, a breadth within it. Different ages and ethnicities and languages and backgrounds and stories and and town and gown and East Oxford and Oxford and beyond. Paul rejoices 
because of the progress of his people in Philippi. How do we maintain that kind of a unity? I take it we allow our well-being to go on being affected by each other. We love them. We find joy in the progress of others. We seek to encourage others as family. And that is countercultural because much of the time, the story's told, well, community is a nice idea. But it's not really workable because people are a nightmare. And to find joy, really, you've got to look after number one. You need to put yourself first. But that doesn't stack up with Philippians. And just what about this? What about if, like our creator and our king, we were made to be relational? What about if we were made to serve others? Then as we pour ourselves out for others and we find joy in their progress, then we are actually being profoundly human. Profoundly the people we were meant to be because we are being like Jesus. What about that? But our hearts get drawn towards the idea that, well, I must look after myself first. I can't take this too seriously. As the children had in their slightly old and cheesy kids slot, joy genuinely comes from Jesus first, and then others, and then us. Let's pray that as a church that would be a reality for us. This wouldn't just be one Sunday in September, but this would be the rest of our lives. And you see, when these two sources of joy are in place, when we realise it's about Christ and when we realise it's in people, there's a really important implication for us. Because you see, then joy is not dependent upon circumstances. As you read the letter, you see Paul had Quite a lot of things potentially that he could moan about. Quite a few things on his things to complain about list. But he writes this letter full of joy from prison, chained up with opponents seeking to undermine his work. And, and yet he's still joyful. And for people like us in the West, that is completely counterintuitive. He's, he's not a masochist, though. He's not pretending. He is not mentally ill. It's just that Jesus has not changed. And the Philippians are still partnering and progressing. And so Paul still has real joy because it's not about circumstances for him. I think my problem pretty much is that I look to my circumstances for my joy. I don't know about you. How does that pan out for Paul in the letter? How does this idea that he doesn't look for joy in his circumstances, how does that apply As you go through. Well he doesn't look for joy in circumstances. And so he can rejoice that the gospel is being preached by opponents. Out of bad motives. 1 verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is in every way. Whether from false motives or true. Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. So easily we can want competition to fail. But for Paul it's only about Christ. He doesn't care. As long as it's the gospel. He doesn't care at all. He doesn't look for joy in circumstances and so he can say that extraordinary thing in 1 verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that amazing? He wants to depart and be with Christ which will be better but he is genuinely content 
with whatever the Lord has for him. Because to live means Christ. He doesn't look for joy in circumstances, so he doesn't particularly care that his life is being spent, poured out like a drink offering to verse 17 and 18. Now he's glad and he rejoices with them. You see, when your joy comes from something other than circumstances, life is very different. As we finish, I think if you're anything like me, you will, you will recognize why we have called this series The Struggle for Joy in the Mess of Life. Because joy is a struggle, isn't it? Our hearts are like shopping trolleys. They do veer about all over the place after other things that we think will give us joy. And so the struggle, the daily battle, is to really trust that God knows best. To live by faith and not by sight. To not be duped by the things that the world promises. To to find joy in Christ. In his beauty, his glory, his majesty, his patience, his kindness. To find joy in the progress of his people. And not from our circumstances. And as I say that, I get the rub of where that hurts. I know that truth will cost people here this morning because I have the privilege of knowing something of what's going on in people's lives, various people, not everybody. I know people struggling with all kinds of things. And to say, well, we must find joy in Christ and we must find joy in people and circumstances aren't so important, I know that hurts. I take it our daily battle is is this, as C.S. Lewis puts it, and I make no apologies having quoted this already in previous mornings he says this does it begins the moment you wake up each morning when all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals but we must respond in kind the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back in listening to that other voice taking that other point of view letting that other larger stronger quieter life come flowing in that's our first thing for every morning. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be beautiful for us to be a church that does that, that first job each morning, every morning? People who are genuinely joyful despite the mess of life because we, we look to Christ first. And yes, there may be profound pain. Yes, hearts may be broken as we encounter the reality of life, the frustration of, of broken bodies, broken communities, a broken church, broken world. But we know at the very core of who we are that we have Christ and that he is better and he is enough. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you the truths that we sung in the song, Two Sins Have We Committed, that we, we turn away from you and we turn to other things far too quickly. And we pray for ourselves this morning and for ourselves for this term that you would be at work in our hearts. That we might know something of that joy of knowing Christ because we see how incredible he is. In his precious name we pray.
Amen.